Hello everyone, welcome to Random Encounter 284-284. My name is John O'Logan and happy holidays. Uh, this is technically going to be our holiday episode as the Monday two weeks from now is Christmas morning. So the episode two weeks from now will be going up the next day. So in Canada, that would be Boxing Day. Uh, Americans don't celebrate Boxing Day, which is weird to me because it seems like such a great idea. Um, anyway, so Merry Christmas to everyone out there who celebrates. Uh, it was a big week in games. It was a real big week in games. So we have a lot to talk about. Uh, I just want to introduce this week's panel and we can get talking. So Abe, you, Abe is here, fresh from Japan, as a matter of fact. Ohio gozaimasu. Although I'm not so in Japan. I'm actually back in the States now. But I, I still appreciate that little burst of uh, enthusiasm there. That was <laughs> that was good. Uh, and Izzy is with us today. Hello. All right. So we have the Game Awards 2023. They were this week. Uh, it was, I enjoyed it. It was a big show. There was some controversy involved in it for a variety of reasons. Uh, but I personally, I thought it was pretty much what it, ex you know, it's, it's sort of just winter E3 at this point, uh, with the, the veneer of awards put in front of it. Um, some people had a pretty big issue. I think that the game awards got spooked last year by like the, what was it? Eight minute and 30 second speech for best performance. So they really cut the speeches short this year to about 30 seconds before the music started playing off the, uh, winners. Uh, and they also combined a lot of awards into like rapid fire ones. And some of those awards were fairly, you know, technically big categories. It was weird, but what wasn't weird were the, uh, really great assortment of announcements that were involved. But first let's take a look at some of the big award winners. Uh, it was Baldur Gate's three big night. Uh, they were kind of the, they weren't quite the Titanic of the Game Awards because they didn't win everything, but they did win a lot. They won Best Game, Best RPG, Best Community Support, Best Multiplayer, Player Voice, and Best Performance. Uh, sea of Stars won Best Indie, which made me happy as both a fan of RPGs and a Canadian. Cyberpunk 2077 won Best Ongoing Game, which is weird for so many reasons. Um... I don't understand. No one understands, and no one's even angry about it. People just seem to be like, what? That's... That seems strange. So I guess that a game being in development continuously after it's released because it was broken is considered to be ongoing. Um, but there were also a lot of really, really cool uh, announcements and trailers. So uh, one of the biggest ones was that Square Enix revealed two waves of DLC for Final Fantasy 16. They announced the Echoes of the Fallen and the Rising Tide. Uh, the big news, though, was that they actually shadow-dropped Echoes of the Fallen that night. So right now, Zach is currently hard at work on a review for it. Uh, have either of you played Final Fantasy sixteen? And if you did, are you excited for the DLC? So I did play Final Fantasy sixteen uh, on release, played it in just like a couple days, powered through it. I enjoyed my time with it overall, but I had quite a lot of complaints with it. And it probably is the Final Fantasy game I'm least likely to replay. So I'm not even sure if I'm interested in that DLC because it doesn't look like it changes enough about the game to really pull me in. But we'll see. Um, Yeah, I'm about halfway through Final Fantasy 16. I, I, I suppose I should finish it. Uh, <laughs> but uh, <laughs> but uh, well, yeah, I don't know. I might be interested in checking out the DLC if I ever get there. <laughs> yeah, I sincerely doubt that I'm going to be playing Final Fantasy 16. Certainly not in 2023 because there's only 21 days left in that month, uh, that year. And I feel like at some point in the future, we should have a uh, Random Encounter special, which just talks about Final Fantasy and what Final Fantasy has become versus what it was. Because I feel like Final Fantasy, there are obviously there are fans and they, they, are, they are loving Final Fantasy 16. Zach adored it. Uh, there are a lot of people who really, really adored it, but there are there are another subsection of fans that have sort of fallen off with uh, Final Fantasy over the last 
I'd say decade or so, as it's just become a very different game series from what it was initially. And I'd be, I think an interesting episode would be a, not an argument, not a debate, but a discussion about what Final Fantasy is now versus, versus what it was then. And does it have the same relevance in today's uh, RPG gaming landscape as it did, let's say, around the era of like Final Fantasy X? Um, well, it's be almost been a decade since Final Fantasy XV came out, so... <laughs> <laughs> okay that's a good, good point yes that, that's a good point. i guess but 14 has been updated and that that's been pretty good from what i understand so and yeah, we've for, got final fantasy 7 remake as well um, that's that true yeah that's true uh i think this is an interesting discussion i'll think about that um anyway in other news uh Solosi was screaming because monster monster hunter wilds got announced it's coming in 2025 we got a trailer it's obviously a ways in the future we didn't get much information about it just you know some desert and running on a bird and uh, lots of stuff like that. But it looks really, really cool. Uh, we'll be seeing more about that over the next year and change. Visions of Mana was revealed by Square Enix. So this is going to be the first entry of the Mana series, not including uh, the free-to-play Echoes of Mana on mobile that got released a few years ago, which frankly doesn't count. Uh, it's the first new entry since Adventures of Mana in 2016. Now, we have gotten a remake of Trials of Mana, uh, a few years ago. So that is probably a clue about where they're going to be taking Visions. It was pretty successful, so I imagine that Visions is going to be using that as inspiration. Uh, I still haven't played uh, Trials yet, but I am actually quite excited that it seems like Square Enix is returning to the Mana series because it's you know one of their longest-running series. It's their action RPG staple, and I think that I would like to see them do some interesting stuff with it. I hope this game does some new things. Square Enix is such a weird company. Like they so much weird stuff they put out, but they also like support some of their old series in a way that no other company really does. So it's mm -hmm. it's like a, it's a catch 22 where sometimes you'll get a Valkyrie Elysium, which a lot of fans of Valkyrie profile are not big on mm. Des at least liked it. But uh, but then you'll also get something like this where a series that's seemed dead forever comes back and gets a, a reasonably budgeted looking game that looks cool. Oh, well, I'm interested to see if they uh, they find a way to make it feel like uh, you know a classic mana game um, mm -hmm. in terms of the gameplay. Just because, I mean, there's a lot of hack and slash games uh, now, uh, even from uh, Square Enix. Um, but like Star Ocean, the new Star Ocean game, I, I really enjoyed the gameplay of that. So, and that was, I could see it being kind of similar to that. So I don't know. I'm just interested to see if they can do anything to make it feel like that uh harken back to secret of mana yeah i i kind of i'm on the same page as he I, I don't even know to be honest i don't even know what square enix is anymore uh, i don't think that they know what they are anymore um we keep joking uh that technically our big coverage like the game we cover the most next year because it's from square enix should be foam stars uh we're not unfortunately because mike has no vision as the head of the site we should just become a <laughs> foam star fan um but uh yeah i feel like square enix really needs to really needs to figure some stuff out um and hopefully they will hopefully something like visions of man is a big hit because if you know you vote with your wallet and if things are a hit if they make money then more if it comes our way um Speaking of big hits, Mass Effect has been a big hit. It's a beloved thing. And some of the veterans at Bioware have announced uh, a different studio, and they're, they've announced a new uh, space RPG called Exodus. Uh, for lack of a better word, it looks like a Mass Effect light. Uh, with a dash of the plot of Pixar's Lightyear, there's going to be a time dilation as a plot point here. So rather than just making choices and seeing what immediate effect they have, 
with the time dilation, apparently you can get a chance to see what effects your choices have uh, days, weeks, years, decades into the future, which is a really interesting idea. I feel like that is a real, it's a big, I I, I don't know how they're going to be able to scale that properly and make it a reasonably sized game, but we'll see. It looks good. It looks and you forgot, it looks like Mass Effect. <laughs> I'm I'm very curious in that they're trying to bill it as a franchise already, which mm. usually isn't a great idea. But what I'm curious about is it's the studios founded by Wizards of the Coast. So I'm they do stuff outside, like they're mostly a tabletop game group, right? They make Magic the Gathering, they make Dungeons and Dragons. So I wonder if they can almost force that franchising of it by like releasing it with like an RPG setting for Dungeons and Dragons or a set with Magic the Gathering and things like that. Yeah, they got their uh, they got their beaks wet with Baldur's Gate 3, I think, even though like they just gave the license. It wasn't technically them developing, but I mean, it's I, I know they're tabletop, but that's a pretty good foundation to build a game studio on. Looks uh, all right. That's what that was my opinion too. I was like, this looks fine. <laughs> Sorry, it's going for the McConaughey uh, there, but oh, uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, uh, I don't know. Anytime uh, uh, games touts uh, former Bioware members, it's I feel like that's something that gets me excited. So, but yeah, I don't know. We'll we'll have to see when it gets to actual gameplay instead of just yeah. cutscenes. Yeah, I mean that's the case for most of these trailers. Most of these trailers are just cutscenes. Um, one of the things that got me the most excited and caught me the most off guard was an announcement of a sequel to The Case of the Golden Idol, The Rise of the Golden Idol. Uh, Case was my favorite, my stealthy favorite game in recent memory. Uh, I think I've mentioned it on this podcast before. It's like, it's probably the best uh, unofficial couch co-op game I've played in years where Amanda and I just sat on the couch together and tried to unravel the mysteries in it. Uh, it was so much fun. I, if, if you have a partner who is into video games or even one who isn't, uh, I cannot recommend this game more as a, a fun way to spend an evening or two. Uh, it looks like Rise is going to be, at least based on the trailer, a little bit more active, I guess, whereas uh, Case was it was com- almost completely static scenes with just minimal animation. Uh, this, you know, the camera's moving around and stuff. So I, I have hopes that this is going to be uh, as good as the original. Um, Oh, I'm very excited for it. And neither of you have played uh, Golden Idol, have you? I have not. Oh, God, I, I so recommend it. Everyone out there who is like, we still don't have a review on the site. So if if it, if you like see it on sale at Christmas on a Steam sale and you're like, I'll give that a shot and you want to write a review for it. I've been like trying to get people to write a review for it. I should write a review for it. I just don't have the time. Um, <laughs> anyway, uh, in other news, we have Lost Records bloom and rage which caitlin described as a life is strange like and i described as life is stranger things um it, it kind of looks like a, a female-led version of stranger things from the images there are some very retro uh stylings and fashion and uh for women who look like they're from the 1980s or early 90s and then it fast forwards and it follows them in modern day it looks like life is strange it's from many of the same uh, developers of life is strange so it's very interesting. Uh, it has a good look. I hope that it's. I hope it's pretty good. It also kind of evokes Stephen King's It as well with the future, the modern day people and the them as kids and something horrible happening kind of thing. Yes. Oh, the eighties. You have so much to answer for, and you are <laughs> answering it nonstop. Um, 
We, uh, outside of the announcements, we actually got some interesting performances. We got a live performance of the theme song from Final Fantasy VII Rebirth. Uh, neat song. I very darkly, there was, there was the performer singing it on stage. And then behind her, uh, there was the character singing it. Was that Aerith singing it? I, I couldn't tell. Kind of looked like her. I, I think so. <laughs> I, I think so like as it. well. Yeah. <laughs> the joke that I made in the chat, which was fairly dark, is I really wanted Sephiroth to just drop down from the rafters with his sword <laughs> midway through, skewer her, <laughs> grab the mic out of the air, and then take the second verse on a dramatic key change. That would have been awesome, but it didn't happen. <laughs> Meanwhile, um, I was like, is Game Awards going to make me cry right now? <laughs> aw. <laughs> it didn't, but <laughs> it was still very emotional. It was a pretty song. I'm... I no one knows what's going to happen in rebirth. Are we going to get a moment that is reminiscent of the original? That's another question that is, it's a difficult question to actually talk about because final fantasy seven remake and rebirth by extension. And I don't know, recycle when it comes out in 12 years from now um, is, I don't want to say spoiler resistant, but like you can't really talk about it without talking about the original and this one and what Square Enix is doing with the narrative. And it's, it's going to be very interesting to see it's uh, regardless of what they choose, whether or not they choose to go the canonical route with uh, the fate of a certain character, or they decide to subvert it. uh, One of the two people are either going to love it or they're going to hate it. And it's going to be a very controversial moment. And we'll probably be talking about it on this podcast and every podcast will be talking about it. They knew exactly what they were doing when like setting up um, people being able to talk about Final Fantasy seven remake, the trilogy forever. <laughs> mm, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. Whether or not they go the, uh, the Scott Pilgrim takes off route. Let's put it that way. Yeah. I don't know if either of you have seen the show yet or no yeah. Scott Pilgrim. <laughs> I'm like halfway through it. I yeah, enjoyed the, it. It was, it was, it was no, cute. It's fun. No spoilers out here, but uh, yeah. you should watch the first episode if you like Scott Pilgrim. At the very least, watch the first episode if you <laughs> yeah. like Scott Pilgrim. Yeah. Um, uh, my personal favorite moment from the entire show, and I think it was the personal favorite moment of many people, uh, was the live performance by Poets of the Fall, uh, aka the Old Gods of Asgard, Herald of Darkness from Alan Wake 2. Now, I, I love Poets of the Fall. They... I found them through Remedy Games because of their very long association with Remedy Games that goes back to Max Payne, but more specifically goes back to Alan Wake 1. Um, I really, like, I just loved their music. I really love their music. And uh, I downloaded all of their albums and uh, really fell in love with them. And the fact that they work so closely with Remedy is something that I I love. And the fact that they did this amazing live performance uh, that featured the original, that featured the cast, and uh, Sam Lake in the middle of the in the middle of the group, <laughs> clearly not a dancer, but having the time of his goddamn life, dancing to this song center stage with this massive grin in his face. It was just delightful. And also, I happen to think it was a pretty damn good song. I really need to play it. It's me too. I've it's on my. It's not like when I say something's on my backlog, it usually means that it's like way back on my backlog. Alan Wake Two is right up to the top i'm waiting to see if it, something goes on if it goes on sale even a little bit of a sale for christmas uh if it doesn't i'm gonna buy it anyway but if it does <laughs> i'll save myself like i don't know it's, it'll be a christmas sale in a new game so it'll probably be like five ten bucks but whatever um i just i love remedies games so much there's something about them all of them even the ones that aren't, aren't really super popular like quantum break uh i i really really enjoy quantum break they just speak to me Something about the almost the repertory theater aspect of it, where they keep bringing back actors to play different roles. I just love it. Like, I really love it. And uh, 
I, I'm just so excited for Alan Wake as it's a continuation of Alan Wake and many of the themes that were introduced in Control, apparently. So whew, it's gonna be, uh, everything <laughs> I've heard just makes me really excited about it. Um, did either of you have any uh, favorite moments or announcements from the show? A uh, little bit of a, a weird one is Sega announcing five games at once. Which oh, yeah. I'm both excited and concerned for, I suppose. They, mm. you know, not very much shown of each game, don't really know what's going to happen with them. Some rumors that uh, Crazy Taxi and Jet Set Radio might be live service games. So it's really, it's hard to know how to feel about, but it also still, like, as a Sega kid, made me excited. Yeah, because there was, I mean, I, I did not, I was a Nintendo kid, and then a PlayStation <laughs> kid, but there was something about that era of, Sega, which just evokes nostalgia, and it seems like they're leaning really heavily into it uh, with these with these game announcements. Well, yeah, like uh, I guess I was just really interested in the uh, the direction of uh, Golden Axe. It, it looks mm. a li- little bit different, and looks like they could add some some stuff to it with the the new environment, the 3D uh, sort of uh, take, yeah, as opposed to the original. Yeah, the games announced were Jet Set Radio, Shinobi, Golden Axe, Streets of Rage, and Crazy Taxi. So. I think that got some some people pretty excited. It was it was pretty excited. I personally, when I saw the trailer, I was like, "Oh, I wonder if they're going to kill Sonic again." That worked out well last <laughs> time. Uh, Abe, how about you? Is there anything in the in the show that caught your attention? Well, I, I am a Hideo Kojima fan. Uh, as mm. as frustrating as that can be sometimes. Um, <laughs> yes. Uh, yes. Yeah, I, I still need to finish Death Stranding, but and I'm, I'm ex- you know I'm excited because there's a new Kojima game coming out. Uh, the 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 uh you know the preview didn't exactly give us a lot but uh you know i love sophia lillis and jordan peele I do too. so i mean that's a good uh potentially a good sign uh for something <laughs> i have no idea what what od is going to be like at all but uh it's coming i guess <laughs> it is their uh microsoft exclusive game too i believe so yeah mm. Like that second person walking out of the door, I was expecting Phil Spencer, not Jordan Peele. <laughs> yeah. mm. That would yeah. be interesting. That's not exactly yeah. the greatest sign for it, but yeah, we'll see. Yeah, yeah. I mean, speaking of speaking of it, uh, she was, I believe, she was in the remake. Uh, yes, and she. I mean, it's fun. It's funny because her career is very short thus far, and it is also really, really good. Like she's been in some really cool movies. She was great in Dungeons and Dragons. Incidentally, the new Dungeons and Dragons movie is so much fun. It really is. It's a really fun movie. Yeah. (laughs) I really wish that, I really wish it got a better reception. Like just, I mean, it got a great reception, but like in terms of the money it took in, because I, I was like, I could go for a sequel to this. This is such a great, just popcorn flick. I really enjoyed it. Yeah. That's something that they could definitely, uh, you know, just kind of, Keep the same actors and just have them play new roles every time. Do the do the critical role thing where you have different campaigns featuring the same actors playing different yeah, parts. Right. Yeah. That yeah. would be really fun. <laughs> that would be that could or, be interesting. Also, like uh, Ishin or um, how it uses the same actors for mm. the characters. Yes. yes, I want I want uh, like a dragon to do that with a different <laughs> with a couple of different genres. I would. Me too. My personal, my fantasy is that they decide to do that, but do a space opera style game, but using, that would be the, amazing. <laughs> using the cast of Yakuza. Just, you know yeah. what? Just get the people, Exodus, just make Exodus into a, like a dragon game and just like have the character, have, have Majima, have Majima fighting like alien bugs. That's what mm-hmm. I want. Mm-hmm. And then do like a classic fantasy where Majima is a elf. A dark elf. <laughs> Tremendous casting. Just perfect. Just perfect casting. 
I have one more thing from the Game Awards that I wanted to mention. Please. Uh, so Light No Fire or Light No Fires um, by Hello Games. Uh, interesting um, show showing for me. They Because No Man's Sky, we all know, had a weird development history. And when it came out, it was very disappointing for a lot of people because it, a lot of the promise wasn't there. But mm-hmm. they've continuously updated that game for like 10 years uh it's in a much much better shape so the idea mm-hmm. of them compressing down this thing they've done for a whole universe into one big world so it's just jam-packed with stuff and then making that fantasy and you can walk around as like a bunny person or like there's dragons you can ride like there's a lot there that could be cool i'm mm. i'm not sure if the end result will be something i want to play but i am very curious about it yeah no man's sky is uh <laughs> Uh, oh god i felt this is related but there was a part of me i felt so sorry for todd howard and starfield at this thing because they zoom in on todd howard at one point and i was like "Ooh, they should do a todd howard sad todd howard meme Uh, (laughs) because uh yeah starfield did not do well obviously they had a trailer uh which we showed up in actually uh our review showed up in the uh the accolades uh for starfield um and I still haven't played Starfield, and I want to. But the fact that it's kind of being received as a poor man's no man's sky is not a good sign. Mm-hmm. It's going to be the next ongoing game. <laughs> next next ongoing game of the year. <laughs> it should be, because when you look at games like, well, it's No Man's Sky, for example, or a, a much better example for this one, Cyberpunk 2077. Like, they realized with Cyberpunk 2077 that their studio was... Their reputation was based on them fixing this game and making it into a game that was, at the very least, approaching the greatness of Witcher uh, 3. And apparently they did, which is awesome. Bethesda, need, not Bethesda as a studio, like in terms of a publish, publisher, they're doing fine. They're doing great. But in terms of their first party games, they need a hit. They really, really need a hit. And starfield they keep trying but it's just not working and i think the only i think that they i feel like working on starfield for a year or two years push back elder scrolls 6 make it into what they what what starfield should have been uh would be time well spent for them i don't know if it would earn them any money but they're bethesda they have they i expect just vaults of gold underneath their studio uh because they keep releasing, re-releasing Skyrim. I feel like they should take a shot and work on it and make it into the game that everyone hoped it would be. I don't think they will, but I feel like they should. It just came out at a, a tough time. I mean, you know, they followed up on Baldur's Gate three. <laughs> uh, You're not you know, wrong. That's that's not really fair for uh, you know another huge Western RPG that's been that's also been in the works for so many years. <laughs> they they, they could have delayed it a few months, <laughs> maybe, and and taken over that uh, that social media. Uh, space that uh, that Baldur's Three was Baldur's Gate Three was occupying at the time. I don't disagree with you, Abe. Uh, t- to the point where I almost wish they released it sooner and buggier because the fact that Bethesda <laughs> games are buggy is sort of it, it's it's a it's an ingredient. It's built in. It, it's baked into the cake. Uh, so if they released a buggy game, it would have been. I think most people would have been like, whatever, uh, and they wouldn't have had. They wouldn't have been crowded out by this uh, generation-defying RPG. That just made them look well, old and dated in comparison. Yeah, literally a month month later, I think, right? About yeah. a month later. Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I don't know. And by the way, uh, this is not me slamming Starfield because genuinely I love Bethesda games. I love the exploration style of it. I love, I, I'm genuinely super excited to play this game once I have a graphics card that won't set my computer on fire if I try playing it. Um, because I, I could get it for PlayStation 5, but I don't want it for PlayStation 5 because I like playing first-person shooters with a mouse and keyboard. I don't think, I don't think you can get it for PlayStation 5. <laughs> no, not PlayStation 5. You're right. Uh, the Xbox. <laughs> You want to know what? They probably will at some point, though. You're right. You're I mean, right. I, I, they, obviously, Yeah, I can not. see it happening. but I can see it happening because I think they need it. Uh, I, if, if this was a massive hit, I don't think it would have ever shown up on a Sony platform. It's not. So I feel like at this point, they need they need it. They might not do it, but yeah, it wouldn't hurt. Though that, that brings up the other tough thing that they, they, they locked it to you know, Xbox and, and PC, which... Uh, locks out a, a huge portion of the the video game fan base because you know I, I don't know how many how many people own Xboxes but <laughs> um, and, I know and the then, PS5 is definitely the bigger uh, console right now mm. and then at the same time Baldur's Gate three only came to PS5 at first and not mm. Xbox so <laughs> yeah that too <laughs> yeah although it is out for uh, Xbox which was another apparently they were supposed to announce it at the game awards in uh-huh. one of their uh, in one of their victory speeches and they just ran out of time great job game awards <laughs> I was thinking based on the game awards and I did enjoy it I kind of wish that there was an indie version of the game awards like just for specifically indie games because at the moment indies might be my favorite well they're not a genre but my favorite style of games they're usually a bit shorter there's usually very little padding they're much leaner uh they do more with less and i feel like uh, a lot of AAA games could learn a lot from them especially considering rapidly ballooning budgets um that's something that i don't think the game industry is quite ready to face yet i think the film industry is though i think that in the next few years you're going to see uh like 25 million dollar marvel movies i think they're going to start cutting that down to about 100 million dollars and just start doing more with less might be wrong about that but it would probably be good for them um speaking of indies we're going to be talking about two indie rpgs today uh both of which involve uh queer themes and queer characters so let's let's get into this so abe uh the first one we want to talk about is a game that you reviewed for the site a few days ago uh called little goody two shoes uh and you loved it you really loved it you gave it 95 um and i this is one of those games which i did not hear about i heard nothing about until i read your review and then i was like oh crap this looks good um so it's little okay technically on paper uh little goody two shoes is a narrative horror rpg from astral shift it's technically a prequel to their 2016 uh horror game pocket mirror um but honestly, calling it a narrative RPG would be a little reductive as it also has, uh, it, it's part life sim, part dating sim, part survival horror, part roguelike, part arcade style mini game uh, thing. It does a lot of things and apparently it does like most of them really, really well. Um, and though it was developed in Unity, it, very clearly it was inspired by RPG maker style horror games uh, uh, many years ago. Uh, but then it takes that and it seems to push it in a less horror direction. So, Abe, you loved it. Uh, tell us a little bit about Goody, uh, Little Goody Two Shoes. It's a very, very fairy tale like game from what I've read and seen. I wouldn't say it was necessarily less of a horror direction. <laughs> um, I, I'd say that it uh, it kind of uh, does a good job of hiding the uh, the uh, the horror part portion behind a veneer of uh, Disney and uh, 
uh, Sailor Moon a sort of aesthetic. Um, okay, so in the horror, I feel like the horror, at least from what you've uh, described here, goes in the more of the dark fairy tale sense than the uh, probably the most famous RPG maker horror game, Corpse Party. Sort of. <laughs> it, it does get it gets pretty dark. <laughs> it gets dark. Uh, okay. Yeah. I, yeah. I wouldn't, uh, I wouldn't downplay that. Uh, too much. Uh, not Are that there I played, any corpse parties in this game? <laughs> I haven't played. In, I haven't played corpse part, corpse party, so I'm not sure. But it it gets it gets pretty dark, uh, especially some of the some of the quote bad endings. Um, mm. But uh, yeah, um, and you you mentioned that uh, you know it it does a lot of things, um, and I think the the amazing thing is that it is able to smooth them all together into a, really a, a pretty coherent experience. Um, without you know without feeling too jarring or or uh or weird well mm. weird in one sense but uh not in terms of gameplay yeah looking at the looking at the screenshots of this game is a trip because it goes through pardon me it, it goes through so many different genres of games like you have this happy little town and it looks it, it's a life sim and there's there are stores and then you you cut over to what looks like a uh a medieval looking handheld uh handheld console and then you go into like the nightmare world and it's it's such a striking looking game mm-hmm. absolutely um it's it's kind of amazing how beautiful they made this uh kind of rpg maker inspired style game look um they've there's so much uh they do creatively uh, uh visually creatively between uh the you know the snes style uh kind of you know look um yep but calling it pixel art i think would almost be reductive because there's a very hand-drawn style uh that's used in it where it it evokes 16-bit rpgs but clearly i would say i'd say it evokes more like late era 32-bit rpgs um i mean the hand-drawn the hand-drawn look of the game is uh i mean it it, okay frankly it's freaking beautiful but i i do want to ask how does that impact the story and the, the overall experience like it i guess my question is does it look like it plays or well the, the gameplay is uh like mostly in service of the narrative like um there's definitely kind of a you know like like you said it's 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 mainly a, a life sim i, I guess <laughs> but you know there's so many different things that you do in the game that's hard to really you know that's pretty reductive to just hammer it into like one genre it really does seem like that kind of game where it's there's so many genres on in play here. So, like, I mean, the main, I guess, gameplay would be that. Uh, well, okay, so this is a, like I said, we, it's a horror game. You had to, mm-hmm. you had to keep the character alive. That's the really the main, uh, the main gameplay. Um, and there's, you know, multiple threats to keeping Elise, uh, this young woman who's the main character, alive. Um, so it takes place in this uh this small town called uh, Kieferberg uh which is very uh very there's a lot of uh german ish uh type of influence here um there's you know a lot of german writing uh you know it's a fairy tale it's very uh very brothers grim uh yeah i was about of, to say it looks brothers grim yeah so dark dark fairy tale rather than disney fairy tale although it does have yeah. the trappings of a disney fairy tale yeah so uh, one of the main things you have to do is uh, you have to, you know, at least has a hunger meter uh, and you have to keep her fed. Uh, so, um, so this, it's not particularly difficult to do. Like 
the the gameplay is not difficult in this game. You, if you fail, it's kind of uh, like I you know I failed the uh, I got her hunger meter all, all the way to zero once on purpose, but mm. otherwise it's it's not particularly difficult. So, um, so it's more is like the Sims, really. <laughs> and <it's, laughs> if, there was, if there was a swimming well, pool, at least would be dead you know, right now. <laughs> if you're reviewing a game, you got to You got to see. You got to see what happens. Uh, but. <laughs> uh, but yeah, I, I would say that the gameplay is mainly in service to building the narrative and building the atmosphere. Um, but you know, uh, in order to keep her fed, you had to uh, you had to either find food or, or purchase it. And hmm. uh, the way Elise uh, goes about her daily life is uh, uh, she does odd jobs around town, uh, which uh, is how she makes money. And so you have to do some of these odd jobs, and that's where the the arcade portion comes in. Uh, they're these mm-hmm. really simple little like almost flash game style uh uh games they're extremely simple um the presentation mm-hmm. of them is really cool though and uh i will as with a lot of things with this game i'll leave that for gamers to uh, for the players to uh experience on their own because mm-hmm. it's it's really cool looking <laughs> um but you know it's these simple games like you know move the character around to catch apples that are falling out of the trees things mm. like that but you know th- so this is how she makes money which in turn then she's able to buy food but yeah she's a she's a free she's a freelancer like so yeah. many of us are <laughs> yeah simple gameplay loop um and then the other the other main thing is that uh you know the people of this town are very uh very suspicious lot they're um they're very religiously devout as well and uh they're kind of um you know some disturbing things happen around town and uh uh, that sort that leads uh, the townspeople to start thinking that there, there may be a witch uh, that's influencing uh, all these weird things that are happening, um, and so uh, you know the the townspeople are suspicious of each other, and they're also suspicious of Elise for a number of reasons, uh, and you also have uh, like a suspicion meter that you had to um, you had to keep down. Um, oh, when you okay. when you talk to the townspeople, they'll uh, sometimes they'll ask you a question and. Depending on how you, depending on how you answer it, uh, your suspicion meter will go up or down. Um, so, yeah, that's that's another thing that you had to juggle with the uh, with uh, keeping at least fed. But all of this all all of this is during the daytime, though. Uh, sort of. <laughs> uh, she, so she also has a health meter, you know, uh, a normal health meter, which is mostly affected in at nighttime when the uh, the really weird things happen. And for the uh, the horror portion of the game, I guess. Because mm. uh, nothing but, up to this point has sounded particularly scary. Yeah, <laughs> but it gets there. <laughs> it gets there. Um, it it actually uh, really kind of throws you into the the at least the hint that there's something amiss, <laughs> uh, like from the beginning of the game. So, you know, with uh, you know, at least lives out in the woods, uh, like separate from the town, and you had to wander through the woods in order to get to her. Her house and that's that's how the game starts uh you know creepy nighttime uh wind blowing uh uh very uh, uh autumn theme <laughs> um uh so yeah it it does a good job of uh showing you this uh this, this beautiful like disney style opening and then you know with a musical number even and then mm. uh throwing you into this like dark uh uh dark a somewhat spooky world. Yeah, nothing says fairy tale quite like a deep dark woods. Yeah, exactly. Um 
and then things progress from there. Uh, you know, she meets uh, another girl who is kind of weird. <laughs> uh, <laughs> to uh, to not spoil anything, um, yeah. When you find a we find a young woman living in your shed, like that's <laughs> that's a uh, you know that's gonna set off some some alarm bells. I think. Yeah, it's the the standard ET play there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um, but yeah, I you know that's why I think it's it's kind of amazing that it it smashes all these seemingly disparate elements together and makes them into a quite coherent experience. Yeah, the uh, the night segments. I guess I guess they're nightmare segments. I'm not quite sure, but they surface level looking at the screenshots and the gameplay, they resemble a little bit a little bit Zelda like. But rather than uh, you know the combat, it seems like the focus is more on puzzle solving and running than fighting. <laughs> That's right. Um, there is no combat, um, mm-hmm. but uh, yeah, it, it it's mainly kind of uh, exploration, and um, there is. You do have to do a bit of running. It's it's a bit of a survival horror game, a little bit. Um, mm. uh, but I really love the puzzles uh, that they, they uh, the developers set up because um, they're really just very well integrated into what you're doing at the time. Um, it doesn't, you know, there's not like a screen that says, okay, it's puzzle time now or, or anything <laughs> like that. Uh, it's puzzle time. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but very, very smoothly integrated into what you're doing at the time. Uh, mm. And it feels like it just feels like it's part of the story. Um, and the puzzles are pretty good too. And I'm not going to spoil exactly what you do in any of them because, again, it's it's best experienced uh, fresh uh, without part of the joy of the game, really. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I do like that they're the puzzles are kind of mostly in in real time, and that's kind of one of these where you gotta you gotta make a certain moves um, uh, at certain times. Um, mm-hmm. And then, so you have to go through a few times, you know, you know uh, die and then start again and try to remember, you know, okay, I need to go that way instead of this way. Uh, and then do like a whole sequence of these things all the time. So that's, it's, it, they're fun puzzles. And I mean, again, the puzzles are only one part of the game. The other part of the game, yeah. another, another part of the game would be the, it's a dating sim. Um, and this is where some of the uh, queer themes come in because, Elise is, I'm assuming based on what you wrote that uh, Elise is a lesbian. Um, and uh, there are uh, multiple potential, I guess, uh, partners in the town who you can meet and romance in the traditional, uh, I guess, Harvest Moon style of game, just interacting with them and that sort of thing. But I'm curious how uh, her sexuality is handled within the story, because as you mentioned, there's a suspicion meter. She is under suspension. This is a very religious town. I'm curious, does her sexuality play any part in that? Or are these, is this village a very accepting village of sexuality, just not of anything else? Oh, well, the interesting thing is that she's not immediately like presented as a lesbian necessarily. Uh, But your only options for romance are, are three of the women in town. Mm. Uh, So, um, and you know, I don't know if if you uh, like understand like um, some of like you know we're gonna get into some like academic stuff here, I suppose. But like you know, <laughs> feminist theory and stuff like that. Uh, you know, history of feminism and and things like that. You know, when we've had uh, like in in the U.S. at least, like when we've had uh, you know uh, scares about witchcraft and and uh, you know brings at the stake and and all that. 
you know, it's it's been largely uh, tied to, you know, keeping uh, s- strong-willed women sort of in their place. Um, so, you know, it do- the game doesn't explicitly, uh, you know, the villagers aren't going to come out and, and call at least slurs or anything like that. Um, they don't, there's not, you know, the, uh, if there's any sort of, uh, oppression or, uh, let's just go with oppression. <laughs> if there's any yeah. sort of oppression in this town, um, it's not tied to her sexuality. Uh, it's, it's tied to the fact that she lives on the outskirts of town and there's a witch about and, and potentially a witch about and, and things like that. So I like how I do like how it it uh, you know it, it makes this connection of of uh you know, of uh you know tying uh, I think it assumes that that the viewer can or the uh, the player can make the connection between uh you know witchcraft being tied to uh queer sexuality uh without explicitly you know hammering the the player with uh the player with uh slurs or or, uh, you know, angry I know language, I suppose. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I know so exactly what I, you mean. So I kind of, I, I, li- I actually like that, that uh, the sexuality is not uh, specifically tied to uh, the oppression that Elise feels. I mean, we're getting, we're getting into some, I mean, we were talking about, this isn't politics. This is just pure yeah. <laughs> bigotry and bullying yeah. Yeah. Um, in, in my mind anyway, and excuses to do it. But Let's in terms of storytelling, in terms of games, movies, television, and that kind of thing. The the phrase you hear the most often is, uh, "Why are they just th- why are they throwing it in our face? Uh, why like geez, they're just like it's it's so obvious right there." And honestly, it wouldn't matter if it was obvious or not. And in this game, it sounds like her sexuality is almost incidental uh, to her character, whereas it is her position in society, and I guess position just living outside of the village. Uh, which puts puts her under suspicion. So I guess that this game is this okay, people like the bigots on the internet. Is this okay to present lesbian sexuality? No. Okay, I guess nothing is then. <laughs> well, on the flip side, I would say, like in terms of you know queer people who actually play the game, it's you know it's nice to not have have to deal with like you know triggering language and and things like that. Um, huh. You know, so that you know, I think that makes it a more like queer friendly experience actually. You know, there's a time and place. There's, there's definitely, you know, there's lots of, you know, like we said, you know, movies and TV shows that, that you know, go hard when, the, when they, uh, when they deal with um, things like, you know, uh, homophobia and, and mm-hmm. racism, and they, they, you know, they use the heavy language. Um, I would, I would term it after school special writing. Exactly. So, so this avoids that, and it, it does it in a more elegant way that I think most people will, will get the connection that the game is trying to make without having it explicitly stated. Yeah. As a story, as a storyteller, uh, I personally, like when they're like, why are they shoving it in our faces? I would, that's, that's a bigoted version of what is sometimes a legitimate criticism, which is why is the writing so bad? Uh, I'm a big fan of show don't tell. Uh, whereas you don't need a bunch of characters to be like, she's gay, you know, whereas (laughs) she can just be gay. And it will be fine. It will read. The audience will get it. You don't need to make a big deal in terms of the dialogue and the uh, explanations of it. And that seems to be what this game does. And I appreciate that. I think that's a a step forward in a lot of ways. 
Yeah, and this game definitely expects that the the player will get it. I think. <laughs> yeah, it's just like it's we we get it. We're I think as a society, not everybody, but in terms of our uh, media literacy, I think that a lot of people, again, not everybody, but a lot of people just get it at this point that if there is a gay character or a a trans character or a non-binary character in a game or movie or television show, we just, we have the language to understand it. We, we have the media literacy to get it now. We don't need an extra layer put on top of that. Um, which I, I mean, there are arguments that can be made. That's, that's where I'm coming from personally as a cis straight guy. Um, yeah, so, so obviously opinions can change based on that. I just, I just like show don't tell. I like the fact that Elise is gay and like not only is not a big deal made of it, it's just like, okay, oh, your options are women. Okay, cool. She's gay. Yeah. Yeah. And I like that the, you know, again, there's a time and place for um, making, it, making it a big deal that, you know, a character is queer or mm. whatever. But this game doesn't feel like it has to do that. It, it's just, it doesn't present it as this, uh, you know, uh, I guess uh, this big, bold statement, it just expects that you're going to accept this as normal because it is. <laughs> yeah, there's a certain level of, from what it sounds like, a certain level of trust in their audience. Um, yeah. Whereas yeah. a lot of... It's unusual, a lot of media, <laughs> a, a lot of media doesn't have that. A lot of media really does make a big deal of it. Whereas here, it's it's just part of Elise's character. It's just part of who she is. Um and I like the fact that it seems like a lot of games are starting to move and a lot of media in general is starting to move in that direction. It indicates uh, growth in our society and in our media consumption. But this is also like, this is the main character of the game. This is not, hmm. you know, what, uh, I guess, uh, not to not to hit on Marvel too much, but sometimes, you know, when they have a queer character, they brag about having a queer character. Marvel and Star Wars, actually. And it's like, Wait, yeah, wait, wait. There are queer characters in Marvel and Star Wars? <laughs> there are, apparently. Uh, but often they're like, you know, in the background and, you know, it's like, okay. Two, the gay man two, and the support group? Yeah, two guys kissed for like two <sighs> seconds on screen. They, we don't know their names or anything. But <laughs> but in this case, uh, yeah, Elise is the main character. And um, the other, the main supporting cast are her potential love interests. So, and that's, you know, uh, this game is fine. Um Little Goody Two Shoes is fine with putting that front and center. I don't know what you're talking about, Abe. They have names. They're Gay Man Extra Number One and Gay Man Extra <laughs> Number Two. They're they're right there in the credits. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Representation. Ugh. Well, I, I I really like that. I really like that. It's just it's just here, and it's part of it's part of the game in a way that is not attention isn't called to it in this in this in dialogue or it's just there, and um. We're just going to move on to the next game now because this episode is going to be running a little long, but I think that's okay. It's our holiday episode. Um, uh, I wanted to move on to the other game we're going to be talking about today. Uh, Izzy played this. It's called In Stars and Time. And this is another uh, indie RPG, uh, which uh, the last game, Little Goody Two Shoes, was obviously inspired by classic RPG maker style horror games. And this game, In Stars and Time, uh, actually was made in RPG maker MV. Uh, MV is 1,005 in Roman numerals. Um, there have been a lot of RPG Maker entries. I don't think they're to <laughs> 1,005 yet. I'm not sure why they called it MV Megavolt. Uh, but anyway, so this was developed in this. And honest gun to my head, if you told me that this was developed in RPG Maker, I would not believe you. It is such a unique and fascinating art style. Very, very eye-catching. Um, and moreover, this game also has some 
uh, strong queer representation in it in a way that, again, it's not, it's attention isn't called to it in a very artificial way. It is very, from what I've read, uh, Izzy, it's very well integrated into the story in a just, in a way that this is just who these people are. Oh yeah, definitely. So, uh, it's interesting because at first you might like, especially bigots are going to say, oh, this is in my face because there's pronouns in their profiles in the menu or whatever. Well, I mean, what else are they supposed to say? They only have so many talking points. <laughs> right. Um, but it's so in your party, there is uh, two asexual people, one of who is also aromantic. Uh, there's two non-binary people and there's a trans person. But all of that is more worked into um, how they're referred to with pronouns and how they react to things and events that happen in the story versus really being called out very often, if ever. Um mm-hmm. Like there's a very good conversation between the two asexual party members at some point in the game where they just discuss the fact that um, they have a very they live in a very accepting world with a very accepting religion overall. It's a religion of change, so um, being trans or being non-binary things, it's just um, it's all accepted very well. But one th- way in which they're not as good is that they do expect people kind of to pair up and bond eventually. Mm-hmm. Um, so there's a very good conversation between these two asexual characters at one point where they discuss this and the aromantic characters, um, kind of comes to the realization that, uh, changing doesn't have to mean, um, changing who you are. It can also be changing the system or people's perceptions of things, Mm. um, things like that. So it's never, it's never a story of queer pain. It's always a story of queer acceptance and, um, these people just being happy to be who they are mm. that not that there isn't other kinds of pain in this game. Cause there's a lot of that, but <laughs> yeah, it sounds like it. Yes. It sounds like there's an awful lot of pain in both the storyline and in terms of some of the gameplay. Uh, yeah. So it's a time loop game um, mm-hmm. and everything that comes with a time loop game is involved there in the fact that you will be doing some of the th- same things uh, over and over, uh, which is, not always a bad thing and depending on how i mean roguelike is one of the biggest indie genres right now and is infiltrating like all the triple uh, a games as well so uh but there is a degree of repetitiveness to that and um the kind of small scale of this project and how the small scale of the story does lend to a higher level of repetition than might be the case otherwise mm-hmm. um and that can get frustrating, but in a way, it's also like part of the point <laughs> because mm-hmm. you're playing a character who is getting incredibly frustrated at having to redo things over and over. If um, and so sometimes, if the game purposely frustrates you, I think that's not necessarily a bad thing, but mm. it can be too much for some people or can be too much at points. So there is that to consider. Yeah. So we're at the we're we're, we're Bill Murray at the three quarters point of Groundhog Day. Sort of. Um, uh, yeah. <laughs> in terms of the frustration. Um, well, t- just talking about the game itself and looking at the screenshots and stuff like that. Uh, it's, you know, it's an indie RPG. And obviously, there's a lot of Undertale here. And by association, Earthbound. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, as someone who, as someone who is still struggling to beat Earthbound... Uh, we'll be talking about that in a few minutes. How do you think, like, I would respond to the game? It's like, it, it is very much in the undertale style but it seems like it subverts a lot of that right so uh it's it depends on what about 
Earthbound or Undertale would be off-putting to someone because they're, despite having a similar vibe in a lot of ways, it's still a, it's very much its own game with its own gameplay and its own ideas. So, and its own themes, like the main theme of the game is change, but it's not as straightforward as that might appear just saying it. And I might be one of the most thematically cohesive games I've ever played. Like everything feeds into its themes and calls back to them and reminds you of what it's about in a way that is very organic and just very impressive. Hmm. Um, Well, I find the interesting, the juxtaposition of the juxtaposition of this is a society and characters who literally celebrate change. That's their, their religion in a sense is Mm -hmm. change. Change is good. Change is necessary. And that's juxtaposed with the narrative concept of a time loop, which is inherently static and change can't happen in a time loop. So I feel like the juxtaposition of the two and the character struggle to change while stuck in that time loop is really interesting. Right. It's, it's all purposefully done and very well placed and well explored within the game. There's like your character is changing constantly to the character you control Sifrin while everyone mm-hmm. else is sta- staying the same, except they are changing in the fact that how you talk to them and how you have changed also changes how they might react to situations or how things will occur. So it's kind of a, a back and forth where and like including your character ha- coming to these like oh i never knew this about this person before and that's i feel so much better about my relationship with them now and then getting juxtaposed by the fact that oh next time they don't remember that we had that conversation and i have to like say it again but now it feels fake because i know already it's very continuously impressive to me how much the narrative is fed by everything that happens and how much you feel that feeling of change despite the fact that you're in a time loop through the point of because you're playing through the point of view of Sifrin who the game constantly refers to as you it refers to you Sifrin Mm -hmm. in second person so you are Sifrin um and that change that happens um through their point of view and their lens and to their personality um it's a good constant reinforcement despite the fact that you're in a time loop and then the things that you learn and change through those time loops and then the things that don't change it's all kind of gels together in um just a kind of magical way interesting um outside of the outside of the uh the world and the overall story time and themes i'm just curious Whereas Little Goody Two Shoes was very much a hybrid of a number of different genres, this is pretty straightforward turn-based JRPG style combat, right? Yeah, so it's um, you know it look it's Earthbound or Dragon Quest. It's first-person mm-hmm. combat against wacky enemies. Uh, the main conceit of the combat being that you're basically uh, crafting rock paper scissors magical spells and the enemies all have an affinity for a certain type which is actually shown in their character art so like a character might be doing like a peace sign and you're like oh they're scissors um or a character might be a giant fist and you're like of course they're a rock or a big rock and you're like okay it's a rock but you know so Mm. like the art um feeds into what their affinity is and then that feeds into what your what attacks might be effective against them or not effective and what characters they will be more effective against it's not Mm -hmm. like super complex but it 
gives you a a bit of thinking to do and it like is interesting to actually have to physically look at an enemy to figure out what to do rather than just like um oh i don't know it's just you don't just cast like a spell that tells you what their weaknesses are or just see their weakness listed on the screen or something you're like okay i'm gonna look at their design and figure out what to use against them mm-hmm. uh and then there's also the extra little um thing where if you use five of the same type in a row your t- team does a team attack which is like the most ridiculous team attack in any game i've ever played because it does massive damage uh it revives any party members who are ko'd and it heals your party by like 50 percent okay. <laughs> and heals all status effects on them as well mm. so like especially in boss battles those are super key because boss battles they're like doing all kinds of status effects to you and knocking people out with super attacks and whatever so then you really want to build up to that and that also like plays into your strategy because sometimes you'll want to use an attack that's not the same sign and you have to think about like how much will that delay me from doing a a team attack and will that be too long and things like that Mm -hmm. interesting the um i mean obviously it's built in rpg maker so the combat while varied is pretty standard jrpg style combat uh something that i really like about the rpg maker style is just how surprisingly varied folks can make it uh you putting their own visual touches on it uh mm-hmm. in terms of the graphics in this game and the presentation it's it uses grayscale graphics uh, yep. so no color grayscale black white gray um it also uses a four by uh three aspect ratio so you're working with something like well you'd see on a crt or a, a game boy for example mm-hmm. which is a nice retro element there i'm curious does the visual presentation is the visual presentation reflected in the game itself and in the gameplay or is it just a visual choice uh so the there's some story stuff with the visuals that i won't spoil um Mm -hmm. but there there is some meaning to why what how things look um in in certain ways uh and there are like occasional like brief cutscenes which are like hand drawn basically that are really um quite pretty and like flow well with the art style that's going on uh it kind of has almost this like new grounds vibe <laughs> of like mm. uh back in the early 2000s or whatever <laughs> um vibe of like internet animation but like black and white and cleaner i don't know it's 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 quite enjoyable um and the i like the fact that there's very distinct uh, monsters and stuff for being able to visually tell what they are um it also probably helps like having very simple black and white stuff when you're doing these time loops where you have to go through this um, areas and have slight like in an RPG maker game, be able to do like puzzles that cross between time loops and stuff. And there's a lot of um, probably complexity behind the scenes of how uh, like flags and triggers for events and um, dialogue and puzzles. So I think it probably helps to have a clean, simplistic art style for that even mm. though it's very pretty. Mm. It is a pretty looking game, actually. I like grayscale games. Grayscale's great. Yeah, I'm into it. Yeah, I'm into it too. Um, I wanted to ask you, we talked a little bit about the um, the queer themes and the way that uh, uh, gender and sexuality play into uh, the characters, but Abe and I got to talk a little bit there about um, how many queer themes are incorporated into media, whether they be games, television, movies, that sort of thing. Um, I'm curious your take on that uh, in terms of how it's presented in this game and just in general. Okay, so yeah, I I think it's an interesting point. I think I do appreciate how 
there is just more literacy around those things so you can be more you can be less um talky about it and more showy about it like you were saying um and just have characters be who they are uh i think to some degree that still hasn't quite we haven't quite reached that point with some identities like asexuality mm. and things are a little more on the fringe of society still and less understood by average people i would say so it's cool to me that like in this game it feels like the focus of the things that do get a little more talking are the ones that are maybe a little less common to people or a little less known um mm -hmm. so that you know gives a bit of that uh background to people well i still think this game does it very well in a way that doesn't feel like it's ever like a uh tr it's not like an infomercial or trying to like mm -hmm. um or like a documentary or something or some like trying to explain it so much as it is just like characters explaining it to each other because they don't fully understand their own identities yet and mm -hmm. then in that respect that's very true to the experience of a queer person so yes and i would argue that that is not actually uh, telling rather than showing. That's yeah. an exploration within the characters themselves. Right. Uh, when I say show, don't tell, I mean like having a random character being like, oh, she's gay, you know, she <laughs> has she has a wife. And yeah. where it's like, you could just show her with her wife. Mm -hmm. Like, And I, I also appreciate what you're saying, Izzy, that there is a certain element of, um, I guess, teaching that was involved in uh, in introducing queer characters to media in a more explicit way than it used to be. Um, whereas, uh, frankly speaking, like the audience just wasn't knowledgeable enough about these things, and you did need to kind of treat them like idiots in a way. And a lot of the knowledge they did have was from like bigoted programs and bigoted exactly, people. So yeah. like they didn't, or things that just were problematic on some degree. So they um what was in their head had to not only be like they didn't have to just learn something they also had to erase something else a bit so and what's interesting about that i find is that because of that level of i guess narrative clunkiness in terms of you have to explain it to the audience uh and because you know it was a writer's point of view and oftentimes that writer would have existed in let's say the early 2000s or late 1990s uh, when viewed retroactively, there is a certain level of clunkiness or something that was, I mean, this is true for pretty much any media, something that was revolutionary and controversial and a huge step forward for a group 30 years ago when viewed by audiences today can be interpreted in a, wow, that is real close to being offensive. Like, I don't know, pulling my top example and a lot of people's top example is Chasing Amy. Um you know, insanely progressive for its day. And you watch it now and you're like, Ugh. yeah, no, totally. That's it's, it's very true. Like what part of media literacy is to be able to put things in the time that they came out in. Um, mm -hmm. So we're really bad at it. <laughs> we're really, really bad at that. I, I mean, well, we're not, but you, you know what I mean? As a society, we're not great at that. I don't think media literacy is something we teach very strongly in like, education and to our kids and things like that as a society and i think maybe we are getting a little better at it in just in the fact that we have to but oh, yeah it is something that like when i look back to being at school like you do a book report and it's on like the most basic themes of a book that's like from way forever ago and you're kind of told almost like guided on a path of how to talk about it versus mm -hmm. um analyzing something from both the point of view of when it came out plus modern day and kind of I don't know. There's there's a lot that could be can be taught about 
looking oh my god yeah. looking and thinking about media and is not so i was just gonna say plus i never read those books anyway so <laughs> that i was supposed to <laughs> yeah i know but you're right izzy it wouldn't wouldn't it be interesting uh in elementary school and high school if instead of the teacher doesn't want to teach that day, so we're going to watch one of their favorite movies. If that <laughs> idea was part of the curriculum in, let's say, English class, if, I don't know, one week you – wouldn't it be interesting if there was a high school class that just every week you focused on a different television show from different periods? Like imagine showing a, high, a group of high school kids around the age of 14 or 15 years old, uh, let's say, soap from the 1970s, like that, that sitcom starring mm-hmm. Billy Crystal as clearly a gay man. <laughs> but not being able to say that he was gay at the time to the point I think they gave him a girlfriend later in the series. Um, like show them that and that would be so fascinating and would I think would do more for their ability to analyze media than reading, I don't know, a, a book from the 1910s or 20s or 30s or something like that. Or to be and I'm a huge fan of it or even Shakespeare. Right. And I mean, I'm also a huge fan. So, but anyway, uh, oh, I don't think they should stop teaching Hamlet. I'm just saying yeah, that yeah, yeah. in terms of relevance, wouldn't watching them, wouldn't showing them the first season of Twin Peaks from 1990 uh, be more relevant to being yes. able to absorb media today? Teach about Twin Peaks. <laughs> I think everyone should teach about Twin Peaks, but that's that's my own personal uh, take. Um, but no, I, I seriously think that's a that's a fascinating idea, and it's something that will never ever happen because I think that many even liberals, this isn't actually a left-right issue. Many people are so firmly on the side of what we were taught in school is what our children should be taught in school. Um, Which is ridiculous because we all hated school when we were in it because it wasn't teaching us what we wanted to be taught. No, it was a spectacularly dumb talking point and concept. I agree 100%. (laughs) Like imagine if we could take what we learned from our experiences in school and apply it and improve it instead of like, for the love of God, I feel like to a, to a different to a slightly different degree because I understand technology has changed the equation a little bit. But I have an odd feeling that if you took a student today and you sent them back to the early two thousands and you sat them in class, any class like an English class, a math class, for the most part, they wouldn't find it particularly different in terms of the material taught. Yes, some of the ways that the material is taught would be different mm-hmm. because technology advances. They probably wouldn't be copying down their notes from a projector, for example. But the content those notes that they would be copying down from the projector, I bet they're the same ones that are sent out dead digitally nowadays. Totally. I mean, just thinking back to like how old some of my textbooks were. Oh God, yes. Yeah. <laughs> and the, the fact that they were still using overhead projectors for things, even when I was in college. Like, mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, guys, geez, I know that money is a factor, but like we can do a little better. We have photocopiers. Yeah. <laughs> anyway. Um, I'd like to move on to the discussion question because this episode is running a little bit long, but mm-hmm. uh, I I really really enjoyed these talks, and yeah, like I mentioned before, I'm I'm cis, uh, I'm, and obviously my my perspectives on these things are directly impacted by the fact I am cis and I am examining it from the outside, regardless of how close I am to people who are queer, uh, and the same for me. So. <laughs> Just yeah, to be, so just be honest. <laughs> yeah, so frankly, talking about it is how I try to get better at it, and uh, it's nice to be able to talk about it in a way that isn't inherently combative, which a lot of talk about queer themes is, because you always have the other side yelling about something, um, their, yeah. whether or not they're throwing it in our face. So being able to talk about it in a 
way that how does this matter? How does this work? Should it be done differently? That's interesting and incredibly educational to me. And I really appreciate this talk. Yeah, it's I mean, constructive discussions are a very nice thing that's hard to get on the internet these days. So, <laughs> well, let's move on to the discussion question now. And like I said, it's going to be pretty quick because we're running a little long. But it's an interesting thing happened to me. Uh, this month has been my uh, playing games that I bounced off of in the past to see if things have changed month. Um, because sometimes you sit down, you play a game, and it might be a really good game, and it's just not what you want to play at that point, and you just bounce off it hard. Uh, I have a few of these. So this month I decided to sit down and replay some of the games from my abandoned list because I have all my, I have all my games organized in uh, play night and the ones that I've played, but haven't completed are on my abandoned list. Uh, So I got through Bendy and the ink machine, which is, I guess a Bioshock like in a way Uh, I played it a few years ago. I stopped playing because it was creeping me the out. uh, (laughs) Despite the fact that I really loved the art style and the concept. And I really, really enjoyed it this time. Really enjoyed it. Uh, and then, funny enough, I uh, started the sequel, uh, Bendy and the Dark Revival, a few weeks later, and I got I bounced off it hard. I got stuck on a couple of really, I think, not great gameplay mechanics. Um, so I, I bounced off that. And then a few yesterday or a few days ago, I decided to try to play The Witness again, uh, which I bounced off hard a few years ago. I got further into it this time. Uh, eventually, I just found that there were some frustrating points in it. I thought some of the puzzles. You have, to, you have to search the world for teaching puzzles. I found that sometimes it wasn't really there. And the, the lack of an overall story, and just to be honest, the pretentiousness of it, really, I found it very difficult to get engaged. Then I downloaded its parody game, The Looker. I beat it in two hours, and I think it's a much better game than The Witness. Uh, it might be the best parody game I've ever played. Uh, and I just recently, again, for the, this will be the fourth time I've restarted Earthbound. Uh, I am, I've gotten, I got three quarters of the way through the game this year. I stopped, I stalled, and now I'm just like, screw it. I'm going to beat it. I'm going to beat this damn thing. I'm going to get it off my backlog. So, uh, Izzy Nabe, I'm curious, uh, what are some games that you may have bounced off of in the past, but you revisited later and turns out you really enjoyed them and they might turn into your favorite game or at the very least a fun experience. For me, uh, ironically, it's uh, Earthbound. Uh, of course, <laughs> of course this, my, you know, my first time playing that was when I was 11, so and I went through the whole loop of uh, playing it, getting angry and turning it off, and then going back to it, uh, you know, when I first played it. Um, but I think it was about when I got to that uh, that swamp level uh, where you got to uh, go through the swamp and, like, it's like you had to walk underwater. And, like, if you're underwater for so long, you get uh, a cold or something, I think. Uh, that was extremely frustrating for me playing my first rpg at 11 years old and uh I but i haven't gotten to this point yet i'm worried <laughs> oh no yeah <laughs> i mean it it was easier when i tried to play it again as an adult so so um but yeah that was that was one i definitely bounced off of at the beginning but um then the i guess the other one would be like the persona games um mm. mainly because you know when i bo- booted up persona 3 for the first time i was like okay you're going to class and then you're going and doing the, the the fighting thing, and it was like, oh, I'm got I got to do this for like a hundred hours. I don't have time for that. <laughs> uh, Go to class. This is what yeah, I do already. <laughs> yeah, really. Uh, but <laughs> but uh, yeah, when I eventually, you know, I eventually picked the Persona Four, and I, you know, I once I found more time, like mm. it was like, yeah, okay, this is this is a great game. These are great stories. So. Mm-hmm. I uh, I appreciate what you're saying about. I, I think Neil also bounced off Persona hard, and now I think uh, it's one of Neil's favorite game series. Um, yeah, Earthbound. I just got Pooh. 
Who sucks? Oh. <laughs> he's terrible. Yeah. He's, te- he's yeah. terrible. He never learns uh, magic. Yeah, it makes it tough. Yeah, level scaling is something that when it was invented was a great idea uh, to get like when party members join, they're at the same level you are. So you're not yeah. like, why is this yeah. person at level 14? <laughs> I'm at level 50. He learns magic. It just says he doesn't have, he can't use weapons. It's it's just that it takes him a long time to learn the magic that's actually useful. Yeah, it's a little frustrating. I would say one of the annoying parts of Earthbound Story is the yeah. um, just that your party members always join you at a much lower level than you. And then there's a game of catch up. Um, Izzy, what is yours? Or multiple ones? I have quite a few because I basically, when I left home and went to college, I kind of made this conscious decision that I was going to try and go back and beat a lot of those games that mm-hmm. and then i've kind of taken that forward as well as trying like i tend to try and go back to games um but there's a few that come to mind uh the dragon quest series as a whole uh we had dragon warrior on nes when i was a kid mm-hmm. and i did play it some and thought it was kind of cool but we also had final fantasy one and as a kid that was just much more exciting to me um mm-hmm. and then i played dragon quest eight when it came out with my mom which was fun but we never actually beat it uh and then it wasn't until the they did those uh remakes of four five and six on ds that i really started to get into the series and appreciate it for what it is a lot more mm-hmm. it, um still not like my favorite series of all time but i there's some really good games in it and it's just a really fun thing to just relax to um so yeah. dragon quest that's uh, a good one yeah bloodborne is one because i'm not I've never really been able to get into the Souls games. Uh, mm. So I didn't really, I basically bounced off Bloodborne because I was like, eh, it's just another Souls game. But then when I went back and replayed it, uh, there's just something about it that clicks more for me. I think it's partially just that the game encourages you to be aggressive a lot more than other Souls games do. Um, mm. The setting's also just really cool. Uh, so I really got into Bloodborne and now it's probably one of my favorite games. So that's that's one of them. One that's like, closer to my heart because breath of fire is one of my favorite series of all time and one of my first series i played uh is breath of fire dragon quarter which when it came out on ps2 i was one of those people like many fans of breath of fire that was like this is just not the same i can't i can't do it it's too different Mm. um and then when i eventually went back and properly beat it multiple times i now like have a hard time deciding if i like like what my favorite game in the series is and it's in the up there as one of my choices like it's such a fascinating well-designed just different game that i absolutely love uh final fantasy 13 okay yeah i obviously like many Again, people good company there <laughs> like many people on launch uh you know just was very disappointed in what i expected versus what i got um and never really played it very much uh, it wasn't until like, I don't know, I can't time is time is confusing now, but it was when I was in college, mm-hmm. I um, played it on Steam, which is not the best way to play it. But there is some fixes that improve it a lot uh, and found myself like falling in love with the characters, even when they are sometimes annoying and goofy and weird and just like really enjoying the combat system. Um, there is still all kinds of flaws to it, but it's it's not definitely not my least favorite Final Fantasy, and I will definitely play it again before I'll play Final Fantasy 16 again. So there's that. Uh, last one is Trails in the Sky. Ah, uh, uh, Trails. This is a, this is a popular one. It turns out. Yeah, I first played it when it first came out uh, in uh, Western release. I think that was on PSP when it first came out here. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And I played it for like four or five hours and just was like, this is too slow. Why am I still playing this? I can't. This is just the slowest game I've ever played Mm -hmm. uh, and just dropped it. Uh, And then eventually I got back to it on Steam and played through it in like a weekend and then played through uh, second chapter and then the third, like very quickly after. And, you know, just absolutely fell in love with that world and those characters. And yeah, there's my list. (laughs) You know, I forgot my big one until we just started talking about this. And it's one of those ones that it's so weird to me today that I completely forgot about it. I tried playing Fallout 3 when I was in college and I got through the prologue and I just hated it. I it did not connect with me at all. I didn't even get to Megaton. I just I just it was just the prologue and it did not work for me even slightly. Um and then I tried it again when I was getting my masters and oh boy did it click. It clicked so well that I finished that and then immediately played Fallout New Vegas. Um so yeah, Fallout 3 might be my big one. And the one that I want to play that is on my to-do list is uh in my abandoned list is Prey because it's an immersive sim uh it's an immersive sim with a tremendous amount of lore set in space and it's like wow this game is exactly what i love and when i played it i got through about mm, i don't know a few hours into it and it just didn't click with me so i think that might have been my headspace at the time and i need to try it again now that my headspace is better for that kind of game anyway uh i would like to thank both of you for joining me today uh i really appreciate your time coming on especially we're recording this a little bit later than usual uh because abe needed to fly back from japan and i didn't feel like getting a jet-lagged abe well you still got it a little bit but oh well (laughs) yeah okay i I understand that's a that's a hell of a time change um so I, i would like to thank izzy thank you for coming on abe thank you for uh fighting off sleep and coming on to talk about your games uh really appreciate it thanks for having me always glad to be here yeah and uh, if you listening are looking for a way to support us here at RPG Fan, we've opened up a store. You can find it at www.rpgfan.com shop. I actually don't know if you ordered something off the store, if you get it in time for the holidays. I think you should try, though, because there's some cool stuff on there, um, including a lot of our 25th anniversary merchandise. And our 25th anniversary is coming to a close in 21 days. That's whew, yikes. This year passed quick. Um, if you'd like to support us here at Random Encounter, you can check out some of our past episodes. Last week, we actually talked about two uh, pretty big games, uh, Super Mario RPG Remake. Caitlin was on to talk about that. And Ben was talking about Persona 5 Tactica. So if either of those games uh, is of interest to you, or you just like the sound of me rambling about things, please check that out. Uh, we are not the only RPG fan podcast here. We also have Retro Encounter with Mike Solosi. Uh, we recently had a two-parter on Bloodborne. And then last week, we had the first part of Dragon Age Origins, and I believe the second part should be coming out this Thursday, and that'll be the last podcast that we release before Christmas. Uh, We also have Rhythm Encounter, which is RPG Fans Music Podcast. Last week, uh, we were focused on uh, the music of Hiroki Kakuda, the writer of a great deal of mana music, Uh, and that's kind of appropriate with the announcement this week of Visions of Mana. I don't know whether or not they're going to be composing the music for it, but we'll see. And then next week, we're going to be having an episode focused in on farming RPGs. Uh, if you'd like to get in contact with us here at Random Encounter, you can fire us off a message at podcast at rpgfan.com. I would love to hear from you. Uh, if you have any ideas for uh, future episode topics or discussion questions, anything you'd like to share with us about our thoughts, please fire me off a message there. You can also fire me off a message personally to jlogan at rpgfan.com. And you can also find me on Mastodon at Logan at mastodon.social, though God knows I'm never there. Thankfully, the collapse of Twitter, I tried Mastodon and I was just like, huh, 
I don't miss this kind of conversation anymore. Weird that. Um, but that, that is my Mastodon uh, account if you are curious. Uh, Abe, where can we find you online? Uh, I stopped using Mastodon a long time ago. <laughs> uh, but now I, uh, the easiest way to find me is on Instagram, uh, Abe Kobolanski. Cool. And Izzy, where can we find you? You can't. I don't do social media, but you can, you know, message Good. RPG fan in whatever way you want and things can get to me. You are a very smart person. Um, okay, well, if you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with your friends to help us get the word out there. And you can rate us on iTunes or, or your other podcast player of choice. Leave us a review. We'd love to read them. Again, Abe, Izzy, thank you so much for joining me today. And uh, to everyone out there listening, uh, I hope you have a very happy holidays and whatever you're playing, have fun.